you. I didn't bring my suspenders or my yellow shirt, but David, it was pretty awesome, and I thank you for that. I watched it on our website uh, early this morning. On the front of your worship folder, I always write for you a little paragraph that helps you understand what God's been doing in my heart in preparation for this morning, and may I thank you for praying for me. I sensed your prayers where I was in Asia this week, and I'll share a fair bit about that in the next few minutes. Look what I wrote. From quiet Walworth County, or even Jamestown, North Dakota, where our broadcast goes to help a little church there, to the huge megacities of Asia and Africa, seven billion people approach Easter week 2013. For most of humanity, it's just another week of frantic existence. Would you agree with that? Is that a true statement, do you think? And what does this Easter week look like in America? Well, for thousands and thousands of people, it's vacation week. That's why there's so many empty seats in this room today. For thousands of college students, it's spring break. And uh, you remember what that's all about. For basketball fans, it's the big dance. This weekend, it's the Sweet 16. Next weekend, the Elite Eight, down to the Final Four, men and women. For business people, it's nearing the end of the first quarter, and you're pushing hard. For all of us, uh, April 15 isn't far away, tax day. But this is Holy Week, and so I wrote for you, for God, this is the most important week on the human calendar. You see, this is the hinge week in all of human history. It all boils down to what Jesus did this week and the difference that it can make in your life and mine and every human being. Isn't that true? So how significant is this week to each of us? What difference could it make for you and me to live what I'm calling Easter hope every day this week and for the rest of our lives? Last week, David talked about the privilege that you have if you've trusted Jesus Christ to be one who carries his name. The place where I was this last week, those who carry the name of Jesus do so at great peril, great personal risk. I met with many who have spent time in prison, been beaten, tortured because of their refusal to deny Jesus Christ. You may remember that I had gone to an Asian city with a small group of two others for the purpose of making a spiritual assessment of that city. What is God doing there in what has been some years ago a war-torn city? 2,900 years ago, God spoke a word, a powerful word at a time like our day. He spoke it to a prophet who took it to a king, King Asa, and the word is this. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole world, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. Look closely at it. Because this week the battle rages greatly for the hearts of every person in the world. There's a dark kingdom that would like very much for you to see this week as just a normal, ordinary week and miss all that God would like to do in your life this week. God's watching and ready to help you experience Holy Week to the fullest. As I've been studying again and reading through the the journey and all the activities that led up to what we call Holy Week, I have found two very significant moments in time. The first, John tells us about it, maybe the the greatest miracle that Jesus did. He, He raised a man who'd been dead five days back to life, Lazarus, called him to come out of the tomb and he came stumbling out in the burial cloth wrapped around him. But the response to that was mixed, you may remember. And religious leaders said, we have a problem here. If he keeps going on like this, it says in John 11, the whole world is going to believe in him and follow him. We have to do something. So from that day on, a moment in time, 
They plotted to take his life, John tells us. So what did Jesus do? Jesus took his disciples, John says, and they withdrew to a solitary place, a quiet place, where they could spend time together and he could prepare his heart and his mind for what he knew was awaiting him. Think about that. Jesus knew the reason he had come. He understood what was awaiting him at Passover in Jerusalem. And evidently, during that period of time where they were together, several days, perhaps weeks, we don't know exactly how long, Jesus began to explain to them. They weren't getting it. And finally, would you turn and look at it with me? Luke chapter 18. He says something remarkable to them. Luke chapter 18. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one under the chair in front of you. Somebody tell me what page is Luke chapter 18 on in the Bibles underneath the chairs. Please. Say it again. 742, Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. And something that we experienced in the house church where I was a week ago this morning, even though there was only 13 people there, when it came time to reading the Bible, they all read out loud in full voice. So could I ask you to do that with me? We're going to all read it together. Luke 18, starting in verse 31, we're going to read just four verses, 31 to 34. You ready? Here we go. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. But the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. Do you see the moment in time? Fellas, we've talked about it long enough. It's time. Pack up. We are going to Jerusalem. In those days of the Roman Empire, there were two great cities in the world. One was the political, military power of the world. What was that city? Rome. The other great city was the spiritual capital, shall we say, the place where people flocked to have powerful encounters with God. What was that city? Jerusalem. Jesus says, we we are going to Jerusalem. Here's a picture of the city where I spent last week. Uh, uh, Years ago, a war-torn, ravaged city, now a city and a communist nation. But as I looked out from my balcony of of the little hotel where we were, it looks like a city that is on the grow, a, a city that's clean and bright, and I found it to be that. But a city that doesn't know Jesus. A city where there is not going to be any Easter There is no Holy Week in that place. Easter weekend is like any other weekend. It's a working time. People are going to go through the busyness of this week just like any other week, except for a few. And I had the privilege of meeting with many of those few. There's some notes that I always prepare for you. I prepared these sitting in that hotel a week ago, and I urge you to take them out from your worship folder. I'd like you to see three things in these verses that we just read. First, Jesus, it seems to me, was explaining to those guys... If your life is going to count, you have to live life on purpose. We are going to Jerusalem. And even though I know what's going to happen, and he details it there, they're going to beat me, flog me, spit on me, and kill me. We're going to Jerusalem. Why? Because I came here on a mission from God. And that mission will be accomplished by my going to Jerusalem. 
You see in your notes, I've given you several examples where Jesus said, here's why I have come. Here's my purpose. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to seek and to save the lost. So even though it's not written in your notes because I sent these while the message was still percolating, take your pencil and jot down two words in the little space there. My purpose. Because here's a question. What is your purpose for living this week, the rest of your life? Think about it for a minute. Really now, why are you alive? What is the purpose of the rest of your life? You're here by God's design. You will live, you are alive, you're breathing by God's design and purpose. May I suggest it's for his great glory. I'd urge you to find purpose with him. Two pictures that'll help you with that. One, a busy street in the city where I was. There's 10 million people that live there, and there's 5 million motorbikes. There really is, because they're all on their own purpose, scurrying about through the city. Here's another picture. My first meeting of the week that I was there, I'm sitting with two gentlemen, as you can see, who look somewhat like me. They are men who have found a new purpose in life. One, a building contractor, all of his life here in Wisconsin, has retired and moved to Colorado with his wife, but he's determined my purpose now that I don't have to build houses anymore, is to focus on reaching that city in Asia. And so he's committed the next several years of his life to being a part of that mission. The other man at the end of the table, 40 years a pastor, now retired. My purpose is to do the same. And both of these men have partnered together. And the purpose of their lives for the next several years is to reach that city with the name of Jesus Christ. The lady sitting between them, a businesswoman. The general manager of the hotel where we stayed unashamedly told me, I am a Christian. I am a Christ follower. And my purpose is to use this business not only to be profitable, but to build a Christian culture in my business. And so we have weekly staff meetings, and we talk about values here in this, in this uh, hotel, biblical values, God-honoring values. We talk about marriage. We talk about family. I hold a Bible study for my employees on a volunteer basis. And I said, how can you do that here? Aren't you afraid? She leaned across the table and looked at me and said, afraid of what? I said, well, um, how about if we start with prison? I've been there. No, I'm not afraid. My purpose is to transform this hotel into a Christian culture so that whoever works here or stays here knows they've stayed in the presence of God. I see a second thing here. I see that Jesus was saying, now, men, there's no more talking about it. Now we go. Time sensitive. Living time sensitive. You and I get one chance at living every day, right? And so as we look into this week and the rest of your life, are you thinking about making the best use of the time that is yet available to you? Repeatedly, Jesus says, the time has come. Another picture that I would show you. You see two men of the nation where I was, one an older generation, one a younger generation. The older man has been an underground pastor now for about 30 years. The younger man is just starting. I listened to both of them talk about what is the best use of now in that great city. They both agreed that the best use is to live making the best use of every moment. So how do you and I do that this Easter? A third thing that I see in verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. That's the where most of the world is today. Would you agree? Most of the world doesn't understand what Easter is all about. 
They can't unless God opens their minds and somebody explains to them, expresses to them the wonderful truth of Easter. Isn't that true? For these guys, things changed. When they met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, things changed. (laughs) When the Holy Spirit of God came upon them and opened their minds to understand, things changed. So that by the time you come to Acts chapter 2, Peter is able to stand up and say, we are witnesses of all of these things. He is arisen. And 3,000 people were baptized that day because they saw changed lives, changed by the truth of the power of Jesus, huh? Understanding. A week ago today, in the morning and in the evening, I was in two little house churches. I carried my Bible because they'd asked me to preach. At first, I carried it kind of uh, in my, uh, under my arm so nobody could see it. I admit that to you. But then I took it out and just kept walking with it. When I got there, I wondered, are others going to come with Bibles? Nobody did. But as soon as you got in the door, there was a little table with a stack of Bibles, and everybody picked one up. And this picture was taken because when it came time to opening the Bible, everybody did. They're hungry to know truth. They're hungry to understand. The disciples didn't understand, but these folks want to understand so that they can know the truth and make the truth known in a nation where the truth is not known. Huh? Look at the next verse. Would you read it with me? Verse 35 through verse 38. As Jesus approached Jericho, read it out loud with me. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Hmm. You see that? I'm calling that living ready for God's involvement in your life. A blind man. Close your eyes with me for just a moment. Uh, Let yourself experience blindness, if you will. The darkness of not being able to see. Imagine this now for a day, a week, a month, the rest of your life. This man had never seen, as far as we know. Just like right now, if your eyes are closed, the blackness of the backside of your eyelids. But he had a hope. Someday, somehow, something would change. Evidently, he had heard about Jesus. And when he heard that Jesus was in the crowd that was walking by, nothing could restrain him. Jesus, have mercy on me. Help me. You can open your eyes. I wonder, my dear friends, what's it going to look like for you and for me to finally come to a place where we say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. Would you agree that for us as Americans, especially, we have so many available resources that very often it takes a long time before you go down the speed dial on your phone or all the other resources before finally, well, maybe, maybe I guess I should talk to God about this. Maybe I should pray about this. Maybe God could do something about this, huh? The place where I was, that's where they start. This is a picture of a week ago this morning, as I was explaining to you, walking down the little narrow street to the place where I was going to have church that morning. This is another picture of later that afternoon, another busy street. And in both streets, I looked in the eyes of people. I looked into the shops and into the homes. I could see that they were people just like you and me, desperately needing the answers and the hope that only God can bring. 
but no one to tell them. Now, in the little house church, I was imagining, as I told you two weeks ago when I was with you, that we were going to meet with the doors and the windows closed and we were going to whisper so no one could hear us. <laughs> Quite to the contrary. <laughs> as you'll see in a couple of pictures here in a few minutes, microphones and big loudspeakers, even though there's only 10 people in the room, and the windows wide open, blaring it out because they have the answers. Jesus. Right? Right? And they are courageous to let everybody know we have the answers. And recognizing that at any time, a soldier could walk in the room and it's over. What about you and me? How evident is it to the people in your family, your coworkers, that you found the answer? And what is it going to take this Easter for you, for me, for the people of our county to finally say, God, okay, I desperately need your help. Look at the next verse. Would you read it with me? Verse 39. Let's read 39 through 41. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? That's going to happen this week. There's going to be some people this week all around the world, millions of them who will come to a place, okay, God, I need your help. And God is going to respond, what do you want me to do for you? May I suggest that part of the reason that I think that is there is very often what we think we need God to do for us is entirely different from what God knows our deepest need to actually be. Do you agree with that? That's why often here we talk about, God, would you touch us at the point of our need, what you know our great need to be. My prayer is that this week in this county, there will be that, that outcry, but it will be, God, you do the work in us that you know we desperately need, not what we think you need to do in us. So have you ever come to the place or finally you came to the end of yourself, God, I need your help. Have you ever come to the place where you were able to say, God, here's the things that I think I need, but God, I release myself entirely to you. Please, you do in me what you know to be my greatest need, huh? And so look what happened. Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. I love that. And I ask you today, how do you and I measure the size and the authenticity of our faith? Think about that a minute. How do you measure the size, the depth, the magnitude, and the truth, the authenticity of your faith? Here's a couple more pictures. This is a young family that has decided the best use of our house is not only to raise our family, and you're looking down on their first floor, a part of their first floor, which is kitchen and bathroom and so on. And then, of course, there's a little entry area there. But up on the second floor, it's church, and this is what it looks like when you get to the second floor. In the front there are young girls from the local university. In the back rows are young men who've come in from the rural areas to work in the factories. Twelve hours a day, six days a week. And then if you'd like a little additional bonus, you can work a half a day on the seventh day. Oh, and then we're going to have church, that little part of what's left of your week. Those folks came, and we had a meal together that evening, Sunday evening, a week ago today. 
Then they came upstairs, and Pastor Mark, they worshipped, and they just ripped the wallpaper off the wall, as I said, perhaps in an earlier service. And the next picture you'll see, one of the ladies stood up, young ladies, and she wanted to talk about the great things God was doing in her life and how Jesus was transforming her. You see the microphone in her hand? She didn't care who heard. She hoped many people would hear because she knew that what Jesus was doing in her life, Jesus wanted to do in the lives of the people outside that house church, in the houses all around. God's doing that in our church. Last evening, just before Saturday Community, we prayed over Craig Pape and his daughter Heidi and Merrill Hansen and Robin, and we sent them off to India where they're going to spend Holy Week traveling through India telling the story of Jesus. <laughs> Annie Baltese, are you in the service, Annie? I was looking for you earlier. Just lift your hand if you are. Annie Baltese leaves later this afternoon to go to Honduras for at least a month, maybe longer. And I want you to meet a friend. Michael, would you come, please? I've just met this dear brother. And uh, I almost need a step stool when I stand next to him. There's not too many people that I need to have a step stool on. We're so glad to have you with us, brother. Come right on over. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's good where, to be here. I have to ask, where have you come from? Where are you from, brother? Where's home? Pakistan. That's where we, my wife and I, live and work. Lift it up just a little bit. Right? That's where we live and work and uh, serve the Lord in Pakistan. When he named the name of the country, Pakistan, could I ask you what happened inside of you? Did something ripple? When we hear names of places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, something ripples, doesn't it, because of the journey of the last 10 or 15 years for America. But I have to ask you, brother, is God there? What's he doing in those nations? What you hear in the media is usually not the most... Uh, palatable because all you hear is suicide bombings, killings, maimings, and all of the rest of that sort of thing. But that is not all of the story. The main story is that God is on the move. Amen. God is marching in those nations. I live in Pakistan and I work in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran. Nations which are constantly in the news but for the wrong reason. But God is moving there. And God is moving in a mighty way, sometimes in big ways which are evident to a lot of people, like Iran. Between two and four million people from an Islamic background have given their lives to the Lord Jesus and chosen to follow him. Amen. So much so, so much so that the National Assembly of that country ordered a law, passed a law which said, Anybody who changes their faith from Islam to anyone, anything else, to Christianity or others, will be put to death. The law went to the, to the next level, to the Council of Elders. And there, those of us who, were, who knew about this were praying, God, will you please up, raise up a Gamaliel amongst them, who will say, if this is of man, it will die its own death. If this is of God, no one can stop it. Mm. And the Guardian's Council knocked back that law and said, this cannot be. Wow. God is moving. I said, between two and four million people in Iran alone. Amen. In Afghanistan, the neighboring country, there are men and women who are putting their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. Not because of spectacular things like that are happening in Iran, but in the soft in the small, in the hidden ways where God meets people and says, 
I can heal you. Amen. I can give you life. Amen. Your child is mine. I will heal him. And I have been in smaller church services. Pastor talked about the little service where the lady has a microphone and is boldly preaching Christ. We have whispered the name of Jesus and whispered our songs because we don't want children to overhear what we say, go out and talk with their mates on the street about what is happening inside because of the fears of prison and possibly losing their lives. Mm. In my own nation of Pakistan, where the daily morning paper reads like uh, a litany of killings and maimings and all the rest of it, God is bringing Muslim people into his family. And I'm involved with a church of people who consists of uh, former Muslims. And it is a joy and a privilege to be with them, to sit with them, and to say, Jesus is the way. We have met him, and we cannot let go of him. And they are following him. Amen. Praise God, my brother. We rejoice with you. you. Join me in praising God. Two more verses very quickly. Look at verse 42 and 43. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight. He followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. What might God do in you and in me that would cause the people who know you to celebrate what God's doing in your life. With the rest of your life, what can you imagine God might want to do in you that your family and friends and co-workers could conclude, only God can do that. There's no other explanation, and I desperately want God to do that in my life. We sat around a table in another church with the curtains drawn. As you can see, the man sitting in the right corner here is the pastor of that church. Sitting across the table from him was four deaf folks. There's a half a million deaf people in this country, but there's only one school for them, and it's hundreds of miles from where we were. Most of them cannot communicate with their family members because sign language is not well known in the country. So that church has decided, we will do a ministry to the deaf. And they're bringing them to this city, trying to provide housing for them, teaching them sign language so they can communicate, helping them with job training, and trying to find them jobs. You can't see her here, but in the next picture you see her. The daughter of the pastor was also sitting among them. She has a bright smile. Can you tell which one she is? She is in a neighboring country from the country where I was. She's an English teacher, and she had gone there to teach English in their schools and found that there were refugees from her country living in that country as refugees in squalor. And because there was virtually no employment available to the adults, they were selling their daughters into sex trafficking. And so she has begun a ministry there to the girls and their families in that place. Tess Cervenka, our own from here, is going to be in that place. And I've communicated with her and hopefully we'll connect the two of them together. What does it look like when God unleashes his power in your life or in mine and so changes us that the people around us can't ignore the change? And it draws them to Jesus. Now, one more verse I want you to see. Probably you'll turn one page in your Bible. 19th chapter is the great entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Look at verse 41 of chapter 19 of Luke. 
41 and 42. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, what does it say? He wept over it. As I walked through the streets of that city last week, my friends, I have to tell you that I asked many times in my prayer, Jesus, are you weeping over this great city of 10 million people? Because there are so few who have found Jesus. Or are you weeping with joy that those who have found you are so courageous they're willing to go to prison to help other people find you? All American missionaries have long since been thrown out of that country. And then from there, I looked back here, and I asked myself this question. If Jesus was to physically come here this Holy Week, not dressed in a bathrobe and sandals, but dressed like you and I are dressed, and walk through the streets of Lake Geneva, would he just start crying? If he walked through the streets of Elkhorn, Delavan, Genoa City, Walworth, Fontana, would he just start to weep? Why? For the same reason. Look here what it says. And he said in verse 42, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Would Jesus weep in our towns because our neighbors, our friends, are so desperate for the peace that we all long for, but they're passionately pursuing other things to find that peace, and it's not satisfying? What are some of those things that they pursue? You and I know it well. Affluence, enjoyment, alcohol, drugs, a different woman than the one they're married to, and on and on and on. I believe Jesus would weep as he walked through Walworth County at the number of marriages that are falling apart. I believe he would weep as he walked the halls of our schools at the number of teenagers that are getting hooked on drugs. Their lives will be destroyed before they ever graduate, if they graduate. I think he'd weep at the number of us who claim to know him, and yet nobody knows that we know him because our lives aren't dramatically different because he's not yet Lord in our lives. We haven't yet cried out for him to do that great change work in us that he can do. Would he weep? If as he's walking down the road, he came to the front of your house, and he stood and he looked at your house, and he considered your family, what goes on inside behind the doors of your house, do you suppose it's possible? Jesus would weep standing in front of my house or your house. And so a couple of closing pictures. Young people there, like here, looking for anything to satisfy. But it's a hungry generation for Jesus, and that's the generation that the underground church is growing rapidly throughout that city. Busy people scurrying about, pursuing their business, their lives. In the next picture, a man who whose life was transformed by the power of God. God healed him from a terminal illness. He's pointing at a map now where the underground church that he's a part of has reached into two neighboring countries. He proudly displays it on a wall of how God is moving and changing lives. And finally, so many people who are pursuing peace in the temples of Buddhism in this country. What would it be for you and for me that blinds our eyes from the real hope of Easter, Jesus. Thank you for praying for me while I was there. I was praying for you 
And I was asking those in those underground churches to pray for our county, for our nation. After the first service this morning, a man came up to me and he said, how long will it take before some of the people in those house churches come here as missionaries? America needs them. Let's talk to Jesus about that. Lord Jesus Christ, as you look at America, are you weeping as we go into this holy week? Because the peace that you offer that is available, that you have purchased by your blood and made available to us, is being pushed away by so many people. Are you weeping over our county? Are you weeping over our homes? Lord Jesus, is it true that we need missionaries from the house church in this communist nation to come here and tell us about the wonder and the power of Jesus? Why don't you just have a conversation with Jesus Christ for a few seconds? Like the man sitting along the roadside in Jericho, are you ready yet to call out to Jesus and ask him to do in your life what only God can do? Are you tired of chasing after all the stuff, whatever it is that you've been chasing? And are you ready to put your life in God's hands, turning away from all that stuff and inviting him to be the sovereign, the Lord of your life and transform you? Are you ready to live your life such that everyone who knows you would recognize that God is powerfully at work in your life? Are you ready for this Easter to be different from any Easter you've ever had in your lifetime? And right where you're sitting, why don't you invite Jesus and give him full freedom to do everything and anything that he'd love to do in your life today and for the rest of your life? And we worship you, Jesus Christ. We worship you.